Hi, I'm Buck the Editor, and welcome to BBC Season 3, where we are about to dive into the book of Leviticus. Now wait, don't tap away just yet. Hear me out. This season will possibly feel a little different because the book itself takes a quick departure from the normal narrative format we love so much, so that our main man Moses can unpack the laws he was hinting about in Exodus. There is a bit more repetition in this book, which actually serves a very important purpose, so listen ahead for that. But because of that, there will be a lot more reading and then discussion as we dive into the chapters of Leviticus. That will allow this season to have a much quicker pace, but you will get more out of this book than you ever imagined as we read every God-inspired word. I know I have. I'm so excited for you to jump in, so grab your Bible and get ready for the best, maybe even the first, trip through Leviticus. Welcome to the club! Welcome to season three of the Bible Book Club. You might be wondering, why in the world should I read Leviticus? Well, we wondered that same thing. (laughs) But we're going to do it for a lot of reasons that I'm going to get into. And there actually is a reason to read Leviticus, the first of which is all scripture is God-inspired, as Paul reminded us in his letters in the New Testament. And that's why we're going through this Old Testament stuff that we've been going through in Genesis and Exodus. Hopefully, you were with us in those two books. But just to recap where we were, the story that we just left behind in Exodus was the story of how God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian oppression then entered into a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai, even after they totally blew it and rebelled against God with a gold calf, tried to get a new God. That was a really bad scene, but they redeemed themselves, sort of. And then God dwelt among them in the tabernacle. Right. And that's exactly where we were when we exited Exodus. God had descended on the tabernacle, but there was a small little statement at the end of Exodus that left the Israelites with a big, problem, a problem that is going to be solved in Leviticus. At the end of the final chapter in Exodus, chapter 40, verse 35, it says this, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the Israelites had built the tabernacle and God had come and descended on it, but not even Moses could enter the tent. Was all of this work for nothing? How were they going to be together? The problem was this. There was not yet a way for the sinful people to be in the presence of their holy and pure God. Sin and God do not mix. Leviticus solves the problem by providing the way with three things, rituals, priests, and purity. And that is the crux of the whole book. The rituals or sacrifices atone for their sin so they can worship with God. The priests are going to intercede on behalf of the people and lead them in worship. And the laws to deal with impurity are going to teach them how to live as God's treasured possession. And can I just say, one of my Bible benders from the whole book of Exodus was when, Susan, you pointed out that there's a correlation between Moses and Jesus. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what God gave Moses as the way for the Israelites to be purified of the sin. But there was a better way to come. And that's Jesus. And I thought that that was a really good comparison. I'd never looked at Moses as Jesus before, and he's not. We're not Mm -hmm. saying that he is, but there's that comparison of how can we get past 
our sin and be able to be forgiven so that we can be in relationship with him. This is all about relationship. Yes. A relationship with God. He desires to have a relationship with you. Yes. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. So why read and try to understand all that sacrificial ritual that's in Leviticus now, today? To most of us, Leviticus can seem bizarre and even cruel. But is it? Most definitely not for the Israelites. To them, this book was the instruction they needed to live life with God. The Israelites' lives led to Jesus Christ, the descendant of the Israelites, who was the very person who gave us life. Animal sacrifice was a common practice in the ancient Near East. But to Israel, it meant something different than it did to the neighboring religions. For the Israelites, cutting an animal's throat and watching its blood and life drain from its body was a visual symbol of the devastating results of their sin and selfishness. When an Israelite sinned by stealing or hurting someone, the animal's symbolic death was a graphic symbol of what was really at stake. Their sin was corrupting God's world, the world that he created to be pure and beautiful. For the Israelite, the sacrifice became a deterrent to sinful behavior. It was a reminder, a very visual graphic reminder of why what they had done was so awful. But even more important, the sacrifice was a ransom payment that covered them so they didn't have to pay with their life. And I know if I had to do that to sacrifice an animal like that, I would sure think twice about sinning. But really, that is what Jesus did for us. So we should still think twice about sinning, but it's not that tangible, literal example right in front of us of cutting the throat and watching the blood. Correct. But this is going to give us a vision of that. So let me let me cover that atonement part right now. The word cover in Hebrew is kipper, which translated means atonement. So atonement is the reparation for a wrong. That's all it is. You do something wrong, you got to atone for it. In early Genesis, Bible Book Club episode four, God used to meet with Adam and Eve in the perfect and pure garden. No atonement needed. There was no death, no sin. Everything was lovely. Until they sinned and were banished from God's direct presence and banished from that tree of life. So is it kind of like there's a consequence for sin, but atonement is like what you have to do to pay for the consequence yeah. of the sin. So, so check this out. If you no longer have access to the tree of life, like Adam and Eve didn't and we don't, then death becomes a reality. Death entered the world when man was cast out of the garden. This was the start of all that is messy and cruel in the world, sin. This is where the horror and ugliness began. The garden that was lost in Genesis 3 was where heaven met earth and God met man. So remember, God wants community, like you said, you know, in the beginning of this episode. Relationship. Relationship. And the garden was where heaven, God, came down and met man on earth. Then the top of Mount Sinai was where heaven and met earth and God met with Moses. Because Mount Sinai can't move with the Israelites to Canaan, the tabernacle was created. The tabernacle will be where heaven meets earth and God meets with the priests. Fast forward to Leviticus. God is going to provide the way for him to meet the Israelites in the tabernacle. But first, it has to be made pure because we are sinful and we are impure. And remember, we are we are constantly decaying. We represent that, that product of sin, that death, and God can't meet with that. To make the tabernacle holy enough for God to reside there, sin must be atoned for. And sin can only be atoned for through death. The 
blood of an animal is a symbol of the animal's life. The sprinkling of the blood around the temple would act like a detergent symbolically washing the tabernacle of sin. Now note, I say symbolically. Then and only then could God's presence reside in the tabernacle. So how does the ritual of Leviticus relate to where we are now, living under the new covenant of Christ. Adam and Eve were banned from the tree of life and faced a life wrought with struggle and pain that ended in death. But God created man for himself for communion. Death was not his goal for us. Like I said, eternal life with him was and still is his desire for us. So we needed a way back to his presence, a way that does not include the never-ending sacrifice of life and blood that we're going to read about in Leviticus. So God asked his son to be that perfect sacrifice to end all other sacrifices. And Christ fulfilled it by becoming man and dying for us so that we may have a pass back into that garden and live with God, enjoying the eternal fruit from that tree of life. So what we lost in the garden of Eden is given back to us through Christ. Eternal life lost is now eternal life gained through Christ. We have a pass back. So why read about all that sacrificial ritual, which is no longer necessary? Why? So we, like the Israelites, who were so graphically made aware of the cost of their sin, can be aware of the cost of our sin. Exactly uh, so we what can you're know talking how about. How far we came, and so we can appreciate it. So we can be thankful to God for creating a way back to His presence, and to Christ for paying our ransom into eternal life. All those sacrifices, symbolically and graphically, and you know, just gruesomely, made them aware of the cost of their sin. Like you said, we don't always think about how graphic and awful was Christ's death for us. And yet, if we did, like the Israelites in their daily sacrificial life, we would be aware of it. Here's how John, one of the first recipients of that precious gift of eternal life, and perhaps the only disciple who was at the cross. So he witnessed the whole thing. This man he loved, whom he believed to be the son of God, um, who had been whipped, beaten, punished, and nailed to a cross. How he implores us to live in light of what he witnessed. First John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So what also is striking me is you're reading that, it would have been very difficult for him to watch what was maybe his closest friend on earth go through this. It's certainly his most treasured friend. Right. And they were all very well studied in the scriptures, in Mm -hmm. these scriptures that we're about to read in Leviticus. Mm -hmm. They knew the scriptures. And they also knew all of the prophets and what all the prophets had said. I wonder if he recognized in that moment or if it was long after. I don't know when it was that he wrote 1 John, but how how long it took him as he was thinking about this, to realize that this was the manifestation of what had been prophesied. By this point, he would have, because First John was written af- well after. Well after. So he would have. Um, well, if that's not enough reason for you <laughs> to read Leviticus, why else should we read Leviticus? 
Most advocates of the book that I read argued that you should read it because, first, the book of Leviticus contains more direct speech from God himself than any other book in the Bible. And then Paul himself said in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, which Heather, you already mentioned. The third reason is that the New Testament covenant fulfilled by Christ often refers to the Old Testament ritual system for explaining what Christ has accomplished. Fourth, the laws of Leviticus were created to protect the relationship between God and people and between the people themselves. And many of the laws in Leviticus embody the foundational principles of love and also support the Ten Commandments. These are all good reasons. However, perhaps the greatest advantage of reading Leviticus hangs on one small verse in Leviticus, a verse that still applies very much to life today. Leviticus 19.18 is a verse that was quoted by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, by Paul, by James, and of course, by John. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is the key verse for this study for me. It's not always, It's not the key verse that other people say. I'm going to get to that one. But for me, that was a Bible bender. I did not realize that this verse that I have hung so much of my faith and belief in God on, God's commands to me, the first and second greatest commandment, was first said in Leviticus. Here's why this is such a key verse for us today in relation to, you know, why study Leviticus. At the center of all we have and will discuss as we read through the entire Bible is this. God desires a relationship with you. You already said that, Heather. He created us to commune with us because he loves us and he wants us to love him. That's the first and greatest commandment in the Bible. It says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Because if we love him, we reflect who he is so that others will see him in us and love him also. Therefore, it makes sense that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love your neighbor was given for the first time in Leviticus. And the criteria for how to love was given very specifically also in Leviticus at the very start of this new nation, Israel. God wants us to love others because when we love others, when we attempt to live in community the way God designed it before the fall, others get a glimpse of the hope, joy, and love that comes only from the Lord. So much of some of these crazy laws in Leviticus don't make any sense to us. It was a different time. And if Moses were to write them to us today, he would have used different examples of things to do. But many of the laws can be applied to us today because they demonstrate love and respect for others. And they are contained, that love and respect, in the New Testament words from Ephesians 13. Ephesians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So those are the New Testament words to us about why if I act like a Christian, but do not have love, it means nothing to God because I'm not going to win anyone to Christ. So I have to 
To act like a Christian, I have to love God and love others. Just as in Leviticus, the Israels had to act like God's people. And and if they didn't love, they weren't acting like his people. It meant nothing. So much of Leviticus are these rules and laws for how to love God and love others. So continue on in Ephesians. Verse four, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Many of the laws we will read were for Israel's protection, for community, so they could trust each other and for the preservation of their nation so that we could have the hope of salvation when Christ came from Israel. Verse 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophecy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Like the Israelites in Leviticus, we still see only a reflection of God in us in the mirror. But in eternity, when the world is restored to the way God created it in Genesis, we will see God face to face and know him fully. This is what Moses craved when he asked God in Exodus 33, episode 22, show me your glory. He said, show me who you are. I want to see you. And then God hid him in the rock and passed before him. Ephesians says just one more thing about us knowing God. Verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Back to that love. We live in a world where faith, believing in what we cannot see, and hope, looking forward to something better, are necessary. Because remember, we don't we don't know him fully. We don't know the end of the story perfectly. It's all still yet to come. But the greatest of the three, faith, hope, and love, is love because it is our love that ushers others into faith and hope in God. It is love for others that demonstrates our love for God. And when we are ushered into our eternal home, faith will disappear. We won't need faith to believe when we are face to face with God. Hope will disappear. We won't need hope for a world of peace. We will be living in a world of peace. So the greatest of these is love because in the end, in eternity, only love will be left. Our rag-clad band of two million recently released uneducated slaves must learn so much if they are going to become a nation that is feared so that they are safe from conquest and respected so that they are set apart as what is good and right and winsome so that they can be a light for the world. To become all of that, the Israelites are going to get more instructions, more rules, more laws, many of which are made just to prevent them from slipping back to their uneducated ways of worshiping ridiculous gods in immoral, unhealthy ways. But most of them, and at the heart of them, is love. God's love for them to protect them and God's desire for them to reflect his love by loving each other. That is why you should read Leviticus with us. Will it be difficult? Yes. Will it always make sense? No. (laughs) Will you walk away glad that you persevered through it? We hope so. 
<laughs> so here we've been reading a little bit of the New Testament, and I really love that you brought the New Testament into this, Susan, because that's why we're studying both the Old and the New and making all of these comparisons. When we were studying Exodus, we learned that what Moses was teaching the Israelites was, we complicate this thing, but it's really two things. Love God, love people. Right. It's the same thing Jesus taught the disciples. Love God, love people. Mm -hmm. So as you read this, when it does seem weird, when it does seem repetitive, when it does seem like something you don't understand, remember, this is all just about love God, love people. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to get into the book that we all came here to read this <laughs> episode of the Bible Book Club, Leviticus. So before we dive into the details of chapter one, let's just do a quick overview. Where is Leviticus in the Bible? Leviticus is in the Torah or Pentateuch, also called the Book of Law or Moses's Book of Law. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. The Torah is a group of five books, and like I said, also called the Book of Law by the Jews and the Pentateuch by the early Christians. All five books in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written by Moses and form the foundation of the entire Bible. Now, if you are curious about the breakdown of all the books in the Bible, we do have two charts that are in our show notes, a chart of the Hebrew breakdown of the Old Testament books, and then a chart of the Bible's breakdown of the Old Testament books, which separates them into five sections. They are the law, which is what we're reading now, the history books, the poetry books, the major prophets, and the minor prophets. That's the breakdown of the whole Old Testament. Now, when did Leviticus take place? Four of the books in the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are the story of one man, Moses, and his journey to lead God's people. Each book covers a different part in Moses' journey to lead the Israelites to the land promised to Abraham. Exodus tells the story of Israel being rescued from slavery and then God making a covenant with Israel and giving them the Ten Commandments. Leviticus outlines for the Israelites how they can live in relationship with God in the presence of His holiness and in relationship with each other. Numbers is the story of Israel's wandering from Mount Sinai through the desert to the land that God promised to Abraham for 38 years until an entire generation of Israelites dies. And lastly, Deuteronomy is Moses' last words to a new generation of Israelites explaining the law and challenging them to be faithful to God before he dies. The books follow a 40-year timeline, which we will also have in the show notes, that compares the dates to which book of the Bible it referred to of these four books I just mentioned to the Israelites' location from Egypt to the Promised Land. Are they in chronological order at all or yes. are they out of order? They're in well, chronological Well, kind order. of, but Leviticus, Leviticus is inserted yes. and it covers all, right? Yes. So in Leviticus, we are still going to be camped out at Mount Sinai around 1445 BC. It is believed that God gave the details of Leviticus to Moses in the Sinai desert during the first month of the second year before the Israelites moved on to Canaan. We won't start wandering in the desert till we get to numbers, actually. So the whole first two books, Exodus and Leviticus, were still at Mount Sinai. Now about the book, the word Leviticus comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Leviticus in Greek means pertaining to the Levites. This, however, is a very misleading name as numbers is really the book that tells more about the Levites. The Hebrew name of, of the book of Leviticus is different. It's I'm not going to say it right, but Wayikra, which means then Yahweh called, which is how the book of Leviticus opens in verse 1-1. This title is much more appropriate as the book is about 
about God's call to Israel to live a life of holiness. Now, the theme of Leviticus is holiness. God says in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. He says it five times. Why? God is holy and his presence is both pure and powerful. So powerful, in fact, that it is both good and dangerous. And I read one description of this that compared it kind of like to the sun. Um, The sun is so good for us, but if you were to go too close, it would burn you up. And if you get too much of it, right, it, it causes right. cancer or whatever else. Now you can't get too much of God. You can't <laughs> no, get too much no, no, relationship no, no. with Him. But if, but because God is so pure, His purity would consume us because we are not pure. So that was just kind of a good little analogy for me in my head. The Book of Leviticus explains to the corrupt Israelites how they can live near God's presence without being destroyed. So they have to make everything pure. The whole book is like Israel's purity code for coexisting with God. It's a rule book. God's holiness consumes anything that is not pure. So to live with God, they must create this pure environment in the tabernacle. Now, the structure of Leviticus. I spent a lot of time on this, so I hope you will all visit our show notes because I looked at a bajillion different outlines to this book. It is a much studied book by those who are scholars of the Bible. I have chosen a chiastic, 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 don't know how you say that, but I've talked about it before, outline that I found on actually the Bible Project because it is the most simplistic. Now, in season one, episode eight, uh, which was Genesis, we discussed a chiastic structure when we studied the flood. A chiasmus is a literary device in which ideas are presented and then repeated inverted in a symmetrical mirror-like structure. Chiastic uses are littered throughout the Bible to clarify and emphasize key ideas or themes. It, It was used a lot in the Bible because it really helps memorization and retention. And remember back then in the Old Testament, people didn't have Written printers, word, written word they had, they to, had to memorize. It. So it was a great tool. So as a short example of a chiastic Bible verse, I'm going to use Genesis 9, which I also used in season one, episode eight. It's the verse that says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. So the first three parts, whoever sheds the blood of a man are then inverted by man shall his blood be shed. In this case, we're going to have a chiastic outline of the entire book of Leviticus, and it'll be in the show notes. This chiasmus revolves around a central point, and that central point where it turns and inverts is atonement. Around atonement, we have three ways, the three ways I already mentioned in the beginning, that God solves the problem of how the Israelites can live in his presence with ritual, the priesthood, and purity. So the outline goes like this, ritual, chapters one through seven, priests, chapters 8 through 10, purity, chapters 11 through 15. Middle, the day of atonement, chapters 16 through 17 is our turning point. And then inverted, we go back to purity, chapters 18 through 20, priests, chapters 21 through 22, and ritual, chapters 23 through 25. I'm envisioning it like a symmetrical mountain and you climb the mountain until you get to the peak and then you come down the same steps that match each other on the other side of the mountain. Right. And the two sides of the mountain are 
emphasizing the peak. They're all about the peak, atonement. This book is all about atonement. How can we be in God's presence? We have to have atonement of sin. And that was the whole thing that had to happen in in the tabernacle for them to commune with God. Now, there's two more chapters. God's provision for how the Israelites will live in his presence is complete and orderly, just how he likes it. And so the book closes with chapters 26 through 27, God's call to covenant faithfulness. The point here is this. God does not call us to anything that he has not equipped us to do. Even reading Leviticus. (laughs) point. I like that. God is calling the Israelites to live in community with him, and he's going to equip them with the way to do it. The summary of what this book is about is this. Leviticus is the story of how God provided a way for the people of Israel to live in his holy presence. And next week, we're going to dive into it. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. Club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.